Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is January the 18th, 2021. This is episode 2807. Today we're going to talk about seed saving and a little bit about developing your own varieties. I realize this is a topic I have not discussed in depth for well over a year. And I think going forward... It may become one of the most important things that you can develop as a skill set is the ability simply to save seed. The good news is, even though I'll do like an hour-long show on it today, it's not something that actually requires extensive knowledge to do. Now, knowledge can make what you're doing more powerful. There's no doubt about that. It absolutely can. And it will enable you to do more with the same skill set. But the act of, I'm going to save some seed and plant it again next year, is something that humans have been doing for as long as humans have understood what a seed was. And that's a long time. It far predates what we think of as the agricultural era of humanity. Human beings were practicing horticulture long before we started practicing agriculture. Many of the things that we grew as humans in our past really didn't work before there was agriculture to create agriculture. So if you think about things like fruits and vegetables, these are things that we plant, they grow, and then there's limits to the storage capacity of them. right? Especially in a world before we had things like freeze-drying and freezers and flash-freezing and canning. If we go back to prior to the agricultural era, most of these things could be preserved a little bit through fermentation, And maybe through dehydration. But a lot of them, that didn't even really work very well for. And even if you did that, it worked very well for small groups and individuals and families, tribes. It didn't work for taking it and putting it into a giant stockpile of metric tons, even though we didn't have the word for it. It was when we found grains. And we realized we could put people to work, mostly as slaves, into giant fields and harvest things like wheat and rye and other hard grains, and that those could be stored for years just by drying them out. And once that was discovered, we moved into this whole world of agriculture, which, again, agra is field, the culture of the field, the culture of the, of the soil is what agriculture is. Horticulture is the culture of plants. So we've been doing this probably since before language fully evolved to be well articulated and written down and understood when things are still handed down by word of mouth and by sh you know, father showing a son how to physically do something, a mother showing a, a son or daughter how to physically do something. That's how long we've been doing this. So if those people could do it, you could do it too. It's actually not that hard. We can just learn a little bit and do a little bit more. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today, is Safe Castle Royal. Safe Castle Royal is like a superstore for prepping. Everything you could want for your prepping, you'll find it at Safe Castle. They have great prices, great shipping, and great customer support. If you can think of it, and it applies to the prepping world, you'll probably find it at safecastle.com. Next up today, Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. Water is life. I mean, people say that all the time. I don't realize, I don't know if they realize how true it is. And there is nothing more important than making sure that you have good, clean drinking water. Berkey is the most cost-effective way I know to do that. It literally can't break. I guess if you drop it, you can break the filter inserts. But it's a, it's a thing that either works because it's, it's, it's working, or it clogs and it doesn't work anymore, so you need to replace filters. Like, it has no moving parts. And it is something you can depend on to make great-tasting and healthy water for you and your family. And before I pass by with that today, I just want to kind of point out that... When you get a notice from, especially those of you that are on municipal water or something like that, um, you should probably boil your water because we had an accident or we've discovered there's a contamination or whatever. What that means, 99% of the time anyway, is you've been drinking contaminated water for like a week or two until we figured this out. If you were using a Berkey, I don't think you'd be that worried about it. Those of you like me that are on wells are like, aha, it doesn't affect us. Yeah, but it, it, who's testing your well and how often? 
some sort of groundwater contamination or something like that, and you don't know about it, you might actually be in a greater risk of consuming things you shouldn't. Berkey's work great for everyone. They, they really do, and it's something that's kind of a buy once, cry once. Yeah, it costs a little bit up front, but once you got it, you got it. All right, with that, let's get into the uh, topic today, which is on saving seeds. I was looking for a good quote to fit today's show, and I couldn't find one. And I'll admit that I, I gave it about two or three minutes of effort and gave up. So then I decided to do something I don't generally like to do. I don't generally like to quote myself. Especially when I'm making an image for an episode. Because I make, if those of you that don't go to the website or whatever, I make an image for every episode with the quote of the day on it. Because it displays better in social media and stuff like that. But I thought today that really, this is what I was trying to get across. So put, you know, let myself have a little bit of ego and go ahead and make my own meme with my own quote on it. But seed may be the most valuable thing you can acquire in the physical sense for the least amount of money. That's kind of where I want to lead off with you guys today. And I really want you to think about what I mean there. So I think the most valuable thing that you can acquire for the least amount of money is knowledge. That's why I added physical sense. Like, and, and the, But the thing about knowledge is, unless somebody's willing to be taught, your knowledge is for you only. You can't really transfer knowledge without somebody wanting to learn or and also having the intellectual capacity to learn what you're teaching. So if you're teaching somebody how to plant seeds, that's pretty easy knowledge to transfer. If you're teaching somebody particle physics, it may be a little bit more complicated to transfer. But anything physical, by the very nature of it being physical, can be transferred easily from one human to another. Here, you can have this. So when I say physical, I'm talking about something you can hold in your hand, you can look at, you can touch it. And people would say, well, gold is way more valuable than seed by the ounce. Yeah, but it costs money to acquire gold. I mean, you can go out and pan for it or whatever, but let's be practical here, right? Seed. You can literally walk through nature and collect wild seed. And some of that seed is incredibly valuable. You can literally acquire it for no money and very little energy. And it stores very, very long term. Remember I started out saying that until we figured out about grains and stuff like that and storage bins and stuff like that? Yeah, an apple doesn't store very well, but its seeds do. A tomato may not store very well outside of maybe being dehydrated, but its seeds do. Same with a pepper. Same with an eggplant. Same with just about any plant out there. Lettuce, there is no good way to store lettuce. And many greens as well. I mean, they just... You don't eat, if you eat cooked lettuce, I don't know what's wrong with you, right? I just, it, it just doesn't store. But lettuce seed can store for decades. Some of it may become inert, but, you know, you could store a test tube full of lettuce seed, and I guarantee you, even in 10 years, some portion, probably 50% or more of it will germinate. We'll learn more about that here in a bit. But how valuable is it? How valuable is it if you develop your own variety of seed that's regionally adapted to your area? And you have a stockpile of it. Now, I'm not talking about valuable from a standpoint of you can sell it for a lot of money. But what's its real value? Even when you buy seed, I defy you to tell me something that has a higher ROI in a shorter period of time. Especially when it comes to annuals and short-lived perennials that you produce in you know one to three years. So think about it this way. What is the cost of... A quarter ounce of arugula seed. And the answer is a couple bucks. Okay, What is the value of the arugula grown from all that seed over time, especially with cut and come again? And it's probably hundreds of dollars. What else does that? What else does that? And the answer is not very much. It could be acquired so easily for so little money and so little energy. And so as we go through this today, I want you to think about what you're really do doing when you're developing the knowledge and skill of being able to save and replant your own seed. You are turbocharging one of the greatest stores of value that exists. This is why I hate companies like Monsanto now bear patenting life and telling indigenous peoples you can't save the seed anymore because, you know, we got around to this sort of global patent system you weren't even aware of first. And this has happened. It's not just their seed that they have developed in laboratories they've done this with. They've, there were stories that once we went into Iraq and we started laying down the law in Iraq post-Saddam Hussein of Monsanto finding ancient varieties of seed that had never been patented 
and trying to patent them and telling Iraqi farmers they couldn't save it anymore without paying a fee. Yeah, freedom. America, yeah, great. We have to understand this is one of mankind's legacies of wealth as we look at this. So, But I do want to start out today with something I think is really, really important because there's a lot of misinformation, especially by people who sell seed, about GMOs versus hybrids and the difference between the two of them. And hybrids need not be feared or loathed or hated or anything. Hybrids are a valid thing that, that well, we'll get more into hybrids in a second. I want to start with GMO. What is a GMO when we use the term in the modern world? It means that we have caused a mutation to the plant, and therefore it's resulting offspring seed, that would not occur in nature under normal circumstances. That we've used something like a gene-splicing gun or a transmutational virus to infect the DNA of the seed and cause a crossing that is not natural. It's not normal. So sometimes I make jokes and say, like, the end of the world is here. Dogs and cats are having puppy kittens together, right? That would be a, gen a, a puppy kitten, right, would be a GMO. You can put dogs and cats together. They can even love each other and hang out together, but you're not going to have puppy kittens. Not going to happen. But we can take, probably, if we were sick and twisted enough, you know, genetic material from a cat and, and, and cross it into the DNA of a dog and create some sort of dog-cat hybrid. That's genetic modification. It's the easiest way I can explain it. So what's done often is they'll take things like cottonseed and they want to give it a trait. And the trait that they want to give it actually is contained within the DNA of a fish. And they take the DNA from a fish and they use either, again, a gene splicing technique or they use something like a transmutational virus is actually the main way these things are done. And they alter the DNA of a cotton to contain the DNA of a fish. And then they also will use these, these artificial techniques to do things like make a plant that can be sprayed with an herbicide. And then the plant won't die, even though it should, because the herbicide pretty much kills everything green. So now we can plant soybeans and spray them with Roundup and other herbicides, as we've created Roundup-resistant weeds, and we can spray this toxic substance on these plants that you then eat. But it's all done through a very unnatural process. And what makes it unnatural is simply the fact this would not happen in nature. So when you hear people talk about, we've been doing genetic modification to plants for 10,000 years or more, going back to the dawn of agriculture, they're lying. They're lying or they're stupid, you take your pick. Because the process that we did up until the 70s, when this started in earnest, in laboratories in the 80s when it got deregulated and it became legal to patent life. Until then, what we were doing was a, a completely natural process of genetic selection. So let's talk about an heirloom versus an open pollinated variety. An heirloom is simply a variety that's been around long enough to be a recognized variety. And so we use the term heirloom the way we do. We talk about a family heirloom. So if your great-grandmother came to this country and, like, the only thing she brought from the old country was a brooch, and that was handed down in your family, we would call that an heirloom. Open-pollinated just means that it is a variety that has been proven out enough that if it, if it pollinates with itself and you plant the seed, you're going to get an offspring that is very similar to or identical to the parent. So they're, in many ways, they're the same thing. All heirlooms are open-pollinated. Most open-pollinated varieties could be called an heirloom, but if an open-pollinated variety is somewhat new to us, we may not call it an heirloom. It's, it's, it's a hair-splitting that's good to understand, but you don't really need to worry about it other than when misinformation is being used to sell you something. But what we really need to understand is that almost every heirloom or open-pollinated seed started as a hybrid. And for that, we need to understand what a hybrid is. A hybrid is a crossing, and in the case of these hybrid seeds, crossings that can and do occur in nature. And often we actually try to avoid this hybridization because we want to maintain the purity of a line. 
And what I mean by that is we have two varieties of tomato, and so nobody gets stuck on anything. Let's just say variety A and variety B. If those two cross, we're going to get an A-B hybrid, a cross between those two. And we're not really sure what the offspring is going to be like. And what we're less sure of is what the offspring of the offspring is going to be like, your F1, F2 generation. So not to go too much into you know Mendelarian squares and going back to eighth grade science class or whatever, but um, we take A and B and we put it together, we get some combination of A and B. Well, if we then take the AB hybrid and, and, and let it pollinate itself, two ABs pollinate each other, what's going to come through in that next generation That second generation of hybrid will be some combination of what the original combination was. All right? And I, I don't want to dig deep into this and bore you, but none of that is bad. None of that is GMO. None of that is awful. The only issue is that almost inevitably, that F1 cross, the first crossing, is going to produce something really cool if both of the things before it were pretty cool. It's the next generation where... In, on average, only one in seven plants will retain the characteristics of the original cross. So let's say we cross a tomato, and one of them is a tomato that ripens really early, and one of them is a tomato that really handles heat. And let's say we get lucky when we do that cross, and it turns out that the offspring start producing early, but also handle heat better than the original early variety. You get a combination of both of those things. And that the fruit looks good, it's a nice color, it's a reasonable size, all of that stuff. So now you have the AB variety. And next year you only grow AB variety or you grade enough separation, you know that it's the only you're, you're now only dealing with AB, tomato variety AB hybrid. When you save seed from it, about one-seventh will retain the primary characteristics of the original cross and about six out of seven, this is an average, Sometimes it's higher, sometimes it's lower. About six out of seven will be some sort of further deviation from the original cross. Sometimes that's good, sometimes that's bad. If you want to then create a new heirloom or new open source variety or open pollinate variety, what you then do is you plant a whole shitload of the cross. And then you only save seed from the ones that have the characteristics that you want And then you do it again. And it usually takes somewhere between five and eight generations to where almost all the seed, if you keep doing this process, will now prove out to this new variety that no longer is really what we think of with a hybrid. It's now a new open-sourced or open-pollinated variety. It's now potentially going to become a new heirloom. And this is the important thing to understand so people stop being afraid of hybridization. Almost every variety that we value today of every vegetable that we grow today began as a hybrid and was a hybrid of a hybrid of a hybrid if you really trace the lineage back. If you take tomatoes, for instance, there's hundreds if not thousands of varieties of awesome different tomatoes. They all go back to a few desert plants that were mostly yellow-fruited, and yet we have this incredible diversity, and that is through selection, and then as we selected this trait and that trait over time, and we developed our own unique varieties, eventually saying, well, what happens if we take this variety and put this variety and put it together? And another thing that you have to understand with this, it does not really apply to saving seed, but it applies to growing food. People think if two plants cross, it's going to affect the resulting fruit. In other words, if we have squash is the one that people really go nuts about. If you have two squashes and they're both C. moschetta or C. pepito, whatever the same variety where they can cross-pollinate is, and those two squashes, let's say a zucchini, a green zucchini and a yellow squash, right? and if they cross, you're going to get a franken squash. Well, you might. If you save the, the seed from the resulting cross and plant that, you'll get some sort of hybrid between the zucchini and the yellow crook neck. Okay? But the the first crossing, the fruit itself, will not be any different. And if you get one that's different, either you save seed in the past, and that's what you're seeing, or somebody had a mix-up somewhere uh, at the seed factory, right? It can't happen. And, and I can use dogs to explain this very, very easily. So if we have a shepherd and a collie, and it's a male shepherd and female collie, and they, they, the female goes into heat and we breed that cross, we get shepherd collie puppies, Correct? 
Very simple to understand. Everybody understands this, right? Now we have a, or if we get a Labrador and a poodle, we get a Labradoodle puppy. All right. If we breed the shepherd male to the collie female, and she gets pregnant and has puppies, she doesn't turn into a shepherd and collie. Her babies are shepherds and collies. If you cross two, two squashes, for instance, the resulting fruit is not going to be a green-yellow hybrid. The seed within it are the babies. Those are the cross. The fruit is the fruit of the mother plant. So we can stop sweating this stuff to a great degree unless we want to save seed and we want to have a known reproduction quantity from the seed, which we'll get to in a bit with some, some rules and things like that. But I also want to talk about the fact that we should probably all be making our own hybrids and proving them out as well. When I went and saw years ago, I went and saw Sepp Holzer up in Montana, one of the greatest farmers that's ever lived. And people started asking about separation these and hybrids and stuff. And he just kind of waved them off like, Did, don't even worry about it. He plants everything all the time. And he saves seed from everything and he replants it. And he just keeps doing it. And you end up with your own land races. You end up with your own varieties, your own unique regionally adapted things. We can also intentionally do this stuff. I meant to do it last year, and I just didn't get around to it because of so many things that went on last year. But I want to do some pepper crosses. There's ways you can do it where you know you actually take the pepper flower apart, and you take the pollen from one to the other, and you know you have a definite cross of, let's say, crossing something like uh, a Plublano and a Marconi. That might be interesting. I don't know. Find out. We should be making these hybrids, and then we should be regrowing them and proving them out because that's how you get new varieties. And if you do that, not only do you get a new variety, you also get a new variety that by its very nature that you did it where you live is regionally adapted to your climate, to your, um, your soil, to your, to your everything, to your pest pressure, to your local diseases. The ones that survive and thrive will be regionally adapted to you. And then, again, I'm back to what's the value of a seed. So... Don't be afraid of this, and definitely be willing to work with it. And I, I don't think we can all act like plant breeders at a university and do this with 20 things at a time. But we can all do one or two at a time. And if we're all doing that and then we start sharing the results, we can create a lot of new variety very, very quickly. And we need to because a lot of variety has been lost. A huge amount of the diversity of our plants have been lost. What I've heard it compared to is if, if the seeds that existed – in 1900 were a $1 bill, we'd have about two to three cents left today. And that's with a tremendous amount of work that was done to restore a whole bunch of stuff. So we need to be working on this. Um, I also want to talk about the purpose of a seed bank real quick and the positive and negative. Just basically, there's a lot of companies out there that sell seed banks, seed vaults, etc. And they're basically a whole bunch of packets of seed shoved into a piece of PVC pipe with the end slammed on or a can or something like that. And the, the purpose is supposed to be when well, you put these in a vault somewhere and then when the shit hits the fan and the dogs and cats have puppy kittens and the zombies march, you'll be able to plant a one-acre garden and save all your seed. It, it, they're almost completely useless with that. They are a store of wealth and a store of value, so I think saving your own seed leads to a lot of value and a lot of ability to do exchanges with other people and to contribute to something really, really important, which is the genetic diversity of our food supply. But this idea that seeds can be put aside the way we put aside gold and then break, you know, break the glass case in the event of an emergency, you'll starve to death if you take that approach and you think you're going to grow your own food. It's actually worse than nothing in some ways because you think you have something you don't. Gardening and growing food is an absolute 100% um, skill set. It requires skills and knowledge and dedication and resources and systems. And people who think that they can use some seed reserve to grow food in a future without any development of the skill set or the infrastructure or the soil quality, you might as well just, you're better off instead of buying seeds, buy MREs. At least you'll be able to eat those. So that is not the purpose of a seed vault or seed bank. A seed vault or seed bank is something I believe we personally develop over time, and it's not as hard as people would make it out to believe. And even some of the things that they do with these seed vaults, that they market as being good for seed, in some instances probably are not. 
Next, I want to talk about, like, when you start thinking about soaring seed, does seed go bad? And my contention is it's not quite that simple. What happens is, much like when we store a pharmaceutical and its efficacy goes down, when we store seed over time, its germination rate declines. So it's not that if we store tomato seed for five years, the seed goes bad. If when we first harvested that seed from the tomato mother plant, if we had planted it almost immediately and we would have gotten something like a 98% germination rate, a year later we might get something like 95, assuming it's been stored well. And another year goes by and we might get like a 90. And then another year goes by and we might get like an 86. And that number will continue to dwindle. But what you'll find, and we'll, again, we'll talk about some things that show this to be the case, that over time, even over extended periods of time, many seeds will still have fairly high germination rates. And I would say if you have 50% germination rate in a seed that you can store by the thousand easily for literally no money and very little uh, 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 amount of space necessary to store seed, that's the other thing, you can store an awful lot of seed, in a small area. In a lot of ways, they do have some real similarities to gold and silver in that way. Huge amount of value in a small space. The 50% is fine. Plant two or three seeds in every hole. You see how simple that is? We, we generally do that anyway. Even if we think we're expecting a high germination rate, and we call out the ones that aren't doing as well. So I don't think we need to be really hyper- worried about our seed going bad. I will say that there are certain seeds that tend to decline in germination rapidly, and those specifically are alliums, onions and chives and stuff like that. Generally about two years, you get into real poor germination rates, um, even when stored well, which is one of the reasons that some of these seed banks and seed vaults are a bad idea. They're assuming you're never going to actually use it, and if you do and the world is ending, it won't matter. They'll be gone with your money in, a, in their own little, uh, uh, you know, uh, their own little uh, shelter or something like that. They're not really worried about it. We do want to think about what we would call like the enemies to seed vitality and what makes for good storage. Basically, heat, light, and moisture are the primary enemies. We don't really need to be like hermostatically sealed or anything like that. In some seeds, it's actually not really a good idea to, uh, to deny the seeds oxygen. And I, I think I'll just talk about that in, in just a minute on understanding that seed doesn't need to be vacuum sealed and stored in a cave somewhere in Norway for it to be saved. Making the short version for now, my grandfather, for instance, saved his peppers and tomato seeds in those little, like, kind of like miniature manila envelopes, little yellow envelopes. And you just write, you know, tomato seed 86 on it for 1986, right? And he put them in there, and the ones that have, like, the little seal, he never used the seal. They had, like, the little, um, I don't know what you call it, the little clasp, a little, like, you put it, there's a little hole, and, like, the metal bends down two directions, like that. And he just put them in a, in a cigar box, a cardboard cigar box. And whenever he started his tomato and pepper seeds, if he had, like, three or four years' worth of seed he would take a couple pinches from each envelope and plant them all, knowing that he would get inc increased diversity of his own seed line that way and not worry about it. And he had plenty of them germinate. And these were stored in a, a cardboard shoe, uh, not shoe box, a cardboard cigar box in a cabinet in basically his workshop with no refrigeration, no, no, no protection whatsoever. I don't know that we need to go that carefree, but it worked. And if we think about how seeds grow in the wild, which I'll cover for you in just a second, you understand why that makes sense. Before we go there, though, I do want to say one thing about a word I've used a couple times here that I think we really need to understand and appreciate, a land race. What is a land race and why should you care? A land race can be a variety of seed that is a known variety but it's been grown in the same place and saved over and over and over and over and over again, where even if we have, let's say, a, a Parks Whopper tomato, right, or a Ping Tung eggplant, or, or just pick, you know, pick any variety that you want to that's known, there's still genetic diversity within that. There's predispositions for that plant to, to maybe fruit earlier, 
deal better with heat. You know, we've all seen where you have a row of, like, pepper plants, and three of them are just doing so much better than the rest of them. And they're all in the same soil. They're all maintained the same way. They all have the same, like, everything's the same, but three of them are just doing better. They're just a little bit better adapted. Well, of course, that's where you would save your seed from. And when you do that over time, and I would say you can call, there's no official rule to this, To me, you can call something a land race in five to seven generations on your property. It, to me, that's a point where not only does it prove out a new hybrid, it probably selects out unique traits within a proven variety. Okay, So let's just talk about how seeds propagate in the wild and how this idea that we need to treat our seeds with kid gloves is, is maybe a little oversold by people that want to sell you, you know, a PVC pipe full of seed for three times what they're worth. Um, in the wild, seeds are exposed to the elements. They get rained on, even when it's not time for them to grow. They get buried in snow. Things crap on them. Things walk on them, right? They get eaten by birds and other critters. They are not planted in general. Now, occasionally a squirrel might bury an acorn that grows because it forgets about where it put it. That happens. But in, in, in general, most places that plants propagate themselves over time through seed, they're not planted in that they're not drilled into the soil. right? They're not mulched intentionally. Now, mulch happens in a variety of ways. They have to compete with other plants. They're not put into this garden where mulch is designed to suppress all of the competing plants. Nobody comes along and goes, ooh, I like plant A and plant B and C and D all need to be plucked out or cut off. They have to compete with other plants. And they're often stored in the soil for decades before they're triggered to germinate. An example is I just recently published um, a video on my Odyssey channel called Green Gold um, by uh, John D. Lou. And in it is a special appearance from Jeff Lawton of our own expert council. And in one scene, they're actually uh, talking to... The princess of Jordan, one of the, I think there's more than one, but a Jordanian princess who Jeff's working with. And she's talking about how they've restored this land in their botanical garden. That's a demonstration to the people, this is what we can do. And she said that when they started doing this, and they kept animals that were overgrazing off it, and they put in some earthworks, and they put in some mulch, and they just started to take care of the land and intentionally grow some things, all of a sudden... All sorts of plants that they didn't plant started growing. All different varieties of, of, of desert native plants started growing. Some of them had not been seen in so long they were thought to be extinct. They hadn't been seen or recorded in the wild since the 60s. And this project was done like in the early to mid-2000s, early 2000s. So 40, 50 years, no one had even seen you know plant variety ABCD, right? And all of a sudden, simply because they were able to germinate, here they are. On my own property, I've one time I had this video of like, what is this mystery plant? It's like, is this Queen Anne's lace? What I'm not sure what this is. I've never seen this plant here before. So I did this video, and like a day later, I'm like, wait a minute. So I go out and I grab one, I pull it out of the ground. It was carrot. It was probably Scarlet Nanta's carrot. I had The reason I didn't notice that it was carrot, I hadn't planted carrot seed. I hadn't intentionally sown carrot seed for like five years. But something happened where it got germination triggered. There's multiple triggers for germination. They include things like compaction. So if you go out and you take four squares of soil, one foot square, Or one meter square. Let's be a little bit bigger sample size. And the first one, you take a tamper and you can pack the shit out of the ground. And then the next square meter, you till the soil up and loosen it. The next square meter, you just water the crap out of it until it's like a muddy slurry. And the last one, you actually set that square meter of soil on fire. And then you just wait. They can all be sitting right next to each other. And all four will have spontaneous germination of things you didn't plant that have been in that block, that one square meter of soil, for who knows how long. But they will all grow different things. You will trigger deep, tap-rooted seeds to germinate by compaction. 
because their job is to decompact the soil. You will trigger hair root plants to germinate in the soil if you've loosened. You will trigger moisture-loving plants that can deal with anaerobic conditions to germinate in very, very wet soil. And you will trigger restorative plants that can harvest the minerals shed by the charcoal and the burn and the ash when you burn. You will trigger, trigger that germination. So where the seed come from? It was there, and it was stored sometimes for decades or more. Sometimes to the point where it was thought to be extinct. So how, how religious do we have to be about the way that we store our seed? And the answer is we probably don't. Now, when it comes to saving your own seed, I think that most people start out with, I want to save seed for their characteristics. In other words, what I'm going to do is I'm going to grow jalapenos this year. And if I want big jalapenos, I will save seed from the biggest peppers I get. Or if I want early production, I'll save seed from the first peppers I get. Or I'll save seed from the first big peppers I get. Or I'll save seed from the peppers that turn red at the size I want them to turn red. Whatever it is, we'll, we'll go to do that. And I think that's, that's noble. But I think we need to remember that our primary objective should be to save first for survival. The place where the plant is under the most pressure and survives anyway, that seed has survival genetics. And once you have the survival genetics, then you can move at an accelerated rate, saving for characteristics. That doesn't mean you always have to do that, but in many instances, it might be really valuable. Think about this idea. With how cheap seed is, what if you went and bought a couple thousand pepper seeds of a given variety? Then you took an area in your garden, not your garden, your, your lawn, and to make sure that nothing interfered with it, you just kind of like put some electro net up or just some, just, just fence it off like wilderness, right? And you just broadcast the seed there. You didn't cover it, you didn't do anything to it. Maybe you threw a little scatter mulch on top of it, kept the birds away from it for a while, and watered it. And give it limited irrigation and just let it go. Let them all come up and compete with each other. And what if only one of those plants grows full, thick, true to type, and produces fruit? What do you have in that seed stock? You have the most genetically adapted plant. I think that like that type of approach is something maybe we need to do more of because the reality is genetic adaptation has to happen at large-scale numbers. So if every year you plant six pepper plants and you save your best seed, that's not bad, but how much genetic diversity are you going to actually get when you do that? And that's also why even with when I have seed that's producing well for me, but if it's like jalapeno M, I'll still bring new jalapeno M seed in from off-site to continue to create variances in the genetics and create really strong land races. Um, But we, we, we got to start saving from a survival standpoint. Separation distances and cross-pollination are something people talk a great deal about. How important is it really depends on what are you trying to do. If you're really worried that, oh my God, one of these might be a hybrid, then you have to really be, you know, look up, and you can look this up for every plant, like pepper, separation distance, etc. And you, you'll figure out how to do that if it's really that important to you. I save seed all the time from plants that are fairly close to each other, and in general I don't have any issues with coming up with weird hybrids. And if you do, I always just, I'm like, well, that one figured it out, so maybe I need to play with this and see where it goes. There's some things you can do other than separation do. You can use succession planting to avoid cross-pollination or hybridization if you don't want it, especially with things that are more like a mass-pollinated thing, like Peppers are what are called a perfect flower. So a perfect flower has male and female both. So they can self-pollinate. Basically, a pepper plant gets blown around in the wind a little bit, and some of the pollen inside the, its own flower will, will pollinate the same flower. That's why peppers have really great fruit set if they're healthy otherwise. When you look at something like corn, you have... A, a, a tassel on the top with pollen and then you have a cob that forms with a silk and you have to get the pollen to the silk 
So that's you know, that's where the wind blows, and then the pollen pollen falls onto the corn. Well, pollen is travels in the wind, as anybody with an allergy knows. So if I'm growing Silver Queen, and my neighbor's growing Country Gentleman, you're probably going to get a pretty good cross pollination if the wind blows the right way anyway during when the pollen sets in. And if you're growing Silver Queen and Country Gentleman right next to each other, you're definitely going to get that. But if we know when corn variety A pollinates and we plant corn variety B at some time after A so that they're staggered, when A is pollinating, B has not put its silks out yet. And we can do this with just about any plants that, that are kind of a single production run plant. And that means they can't cross pollinate. Because it's not there, it's not at the right timing. So that's another way we can handle things. And we can use what we call manual pollination and isolation to ensure purity. In spite of what I said about squashes, you can come up with some crossed squashes that are not really very great. You know, they just don't produce well, or what they produce is not as appetizing or what have you. And, for instance, I love the Trombuscino squash. I think it's one of the greatest squashes ever. And it's the C. Moschetta family of squash. And so, like Seminole Pumpkin, which I also grow, can cross-pollinate with it. All you have to do, though, is think about the fact that how much seed do you need? You know, you save seed from two or three squashes, and you got more seed for squash than you could ever possibly want. So what you do, squash plants produce a male and a female flower. Really easy to tell the difference. The female flower has a fruit. I guess people in gender studies are mad now, but sorry, this is science. And the male flower doesn't have a fruit. And so when you see the female flower forming, you keep an eye on it. And when it's just about ready to open, you can physically pull the flower open, take a male flower and its stamen, and, and manually pollinate the two, then push the female flower back together, put a little piece of masking tape on the end of it so it can't open. And in a day or two, it will fall off, and you will have pollinated it, and no bees could have gotten in there while it was still closed. And you could take a small tie wrap or a bread tie and put it around the stalk behind the fruit, and then you'll know when that one is produced that the seed from it is going to be savable and going to be reliably going to reproduce the exact same kind. I've had people tell me, I don't have time to do that, it's too much work, blah, blah. Again, what is the value of seed? But my thing is that the time it takes to actually do that is less than the time it took me to explain it. Like, I don't believe anybody who actually gardens for real and puts the time it takes in to garden is going to make that case. I think people that say that are people that don't grow anything anyway. Um, and then last, I just want to think, Kind of want you to think about this. No seed can ever be as good as local seed because it's adapted to the diseases, the soil type, the temperature, everything to your area. But in that, I don't want you to think, well, then I, I, I'm screwed because I don't have any local seed. Every seed that you can buy that will grow where you are can become local seed in four to seven to eight generations maximum. Who come truly regionally adapted. And it's a lot like planting a tree. The best time to plant a tree was 10 years ago. The next best plant time to plant a tree is today. So the best time for you to start doing this was at least 10 years ago, but the next best time is now. And as we head into spring, it's a good time to start thinking about this. When it comes to building your own personal seed vault, because this I'm a, I'm a fan of. The idea of going out and buying a seed storage vault or something I'm not a fan of, but building your own. Number one, just remember the main enemies are light, heat, and moisture. And this is why I am not a huge fan of Ziploc bags, Mylar bags, etc. when it comes to saving seed. And I do use them at times because we all get lazy and we all just need something and there's one there, so you throw it in and you write with a Sharpie on the bag. Um... That said, I've had a lot of bags like, what is this? And the Sharpie smears, and it doesn't stay, and, and whatever. But if there's any moisture in the seed at all, if it hasn't fully dried, you can often put seed into moisture uh, barrier bags like Mylar and Ziplocs, etc., and they'll mold. That's not good. You don't want moldy seed. The best thing I've found is, generally speaking, the packages the damn things come in in the first place, 
right? Just fold it over, because then you got the name, the date, all that shit's on there. Germination information, etc. And then for your own, just like my grandfather did small envelopes. You, you write on that, it doesn't fade, it doesn't go away, it stays. You can write dates on it, etc. They generally file nice in a box, so you can kind of organize them however you see fit. Um, that's where I like to be. I do not think oxygen-free is the way to be. Some seed probably can and is prolonged in its life expectancy with an oxygen-free environment. Some is probably detrimental to Which ones? I don't know, and I don't want to find out. I just think about how did nature design seed in the first place? Nature did not design seed to exist in an oxygen-free environment. It just didn't. That's not how seed produces in the wild. So I, I don't think it's probably the best thing to do. And I don't really think you need to be storing seed that long. I think that's something else people need to think about. Your seed should be being grown every year. Now, we don't all grow everything every year. So I understand that maybe this year I'm not really going to grow this particular variety of okra or whatever. you know. But I don't want to get rid of it and I'm going to store it longer. That's fine. But this idea that we're going to store seed for 20, 25 years without growing it out again I think is counterproductive. So I'm not worried about trying to create that long-term seed vault. What I'm trying to do is continuously make it better through saving seed in the first place. I, I also want to kind of point out that I do think buying seed is a good investment. It really is. When you look at the value and how the value can be increased over time through proper saving techniques, that we should not be afraid to go out and buy seed on a regular basis. And I really encourage you to think about buying seed from the smaller seed companies. Uh, Baker Creek, High Mowing, who supports the show, uh, etc. All of these, and I try to spread my, my, my purchases out. Victory Seed Company is another great supporter. Peaceful Valley, great supporter of the show. Without these small seed houses, we're not going to have this diversity. We're really not. And, but then I also want you to like, don't have like, irrational hatred for suppliers of things that are really cool and maybe unique only to them. Gurney's has some varieties, and they're a big big company, right? They have some varieties you can only get from there. Burpee is another one. You know, Burpee has some seed varieties. You, they're exclusive to them, at least for now. Remember, we can always, even the hybrids can always be saved and grown out and to the point where they become reliably reproducible. So don't write off these, but definitely buy from your smaller companies when you can. And... Remember that some seeds are food, and some food is seed, right? So when we look at the grains, that's a perfect example. Grain seed is food, if you eat grains anyway. Um, sunflowers, amaranth, a lot of plants, their seed is a food product. So we can actually buy those in bulk, use them as a bulk food storage, but when properly stored, they make good planting seed as well. And trade is another great way to add stock and diversity. And it's another way specifically to come up with local seed varieties. Like, I would want to know as many people as I could in my neighborhood, my general region, who are gardeners that make a habit of saving their seed. And if you can, like, find some little old lady somewhere that's been saving her seed from her special tomatoes since 1964, trust me, you want some of that seed. And this is the interesting thing. Not only as we let off with our quote of the day, is seed one of the most valuable things that you can acquire in the physical sense for the least amount of money? The people that have the most valuable seed in general will also give it away for free. Because even though that little old lady has a lot of time and effort into that seed that she's been saving consistently for 40 or 50 years, she also has so much value for it. She doesn't want it to go away. She knows someday she's going to die. And maybe her kids or her great-grandkids don't care. And maybe they're not going to keep growing it. And I find a lot of people, when they have a really great seed variety, they want other people to have it because it's like, it's like, a, it's actually a much better form of a vault to give it to somebody who you know will grow it and save it too. Because you know, if you ever lose your stock, it's out there somewhere and it can come back to you. Maybe you even have kids that are like me that are going to come up, grow up one day and really, really, really love this stuff. But like most of us, when we're like 18, 19, 20, and we're trying to get our life together, we just forget about it for a while, and we leave it for a while, and we go out in the world and make our way. 
And when they come back home and say, hey, Dad, what happened to Grandpa's seeds? He says, I threw them away. And 50, 60 years is gone like that. So not only should we be sharing them with the others, we should share what we produce with others. And maybe even keep a little bit of a track of who has what. Not from a standpoint of like an IOU thing, but it would be good to know, hey, I gave seed for this thing to these five people, and here's how to get in touch with them. Because another interesting thing would be, so I save seed, I send it out to five people, they save, they save seed themselves for five seasons. More, so that's ten years old. Then some portion of it is exchanged back to everybody and mixed and regrown. Especially if that's within a bioregion. Maybe not it's all on your block, but it's all within kind of your climate type. That way we can do more together than we could ever do alone. There's so much to be done here. But I, I, I really want to drive that home. Like you, You're talking about something so valuable that people willingly give away. In fact, they want to give it away. It's pretty amazing. And it's, it's another reason I hate these, these giant corporations doing this. They are literally reversing thousands of years of human tradition that was natural for humans to do. I, I've never known a gardener who saves seeds that didn't want to give you some of them. I actually have contempt for the few people I've heard talk about their seed like it's special and they don't want anybody else to have it. It really bugs me. Like, if you only have a little bit and you're still working on it, I understand. But, like, a person who's developed a really great seed variety and, and they have, like, thousands and thousands and thousands of them that's not into the concept of sharing the seed to protect what they developed, I think there's something wrong with that person. And I know there's business models that people want to sell and whatever, but I don't think that sharing that seed variety actually hurts with your ability to sell it. If you're doing things the right way as a seed supplier, you know that every time somebody buys seed from you, there's a chance that they're going to develop their own process for saving that seed and never buy that seed from you again. They still come back and buy more. And I think the more giving you are in this market, the more you'll be profitable as well. It's something that makes seeds not completely unique, but somewhat unique. You know, my final thoughts here today, what are the value of 10 seeds? Just, Just... Realize how it's impossible to answer that question without more information. And then you start to realize how powerful this is by itself. Ten what seeds? Ten black-seeded Simpson lettuce seeds that you bought in a pack of 500 and plucked ten of them out? Well, they'll probably germinate at almost 100%. So what is the value of ten adult black-seeded Simpson heads? And it's many times the cost of the ten seeds. But if the 10 seeds were 10 seeds from a tomato that was proved out by your great-grandmother and is your family's heirloom, how much are those worth to you? If they're 10 seeds that are some variety that blooms and fruits really early of some sort of fruiting vegetable, how valuable are they to a person with a short-growing season versus a long-growing season? Down here where I have a long, long growing season, maybe they're not so valuable to me because I've got seven, eight months at least minimum, more like nine months of a growing season. Then again, maybe they're highly valuable to me because maybe if I can plant them in a very early spring and they fruit early before my summer hits, it's an early season crop to have value to me. It's very subjective. But in... Every instance of anybody that cares about being able to produce plants, there is some 10 seeds that would be incredibly valuable to them. And what if that variety is on the edge of disappearing, but those 10 seeds can grow a crop that will resupply the stockpile? Now what are they worth? What else can you think of like this that you have such easy access to? It's why I think we need to be doing it, and it's not difficult. And, you know, I didn't get into today, well, exactly, how do you save a tomato seed versus a cucumber seed? Here's the thing. Don't make this hard. Just look it up. How to save tomato seeds. How to save cucumber seeds. And it'll tell you, like, let the cucumber grow until it's really big and oversized. It turns yellow and, you know, what have you, and then what to do. And it's, again, it's been done for so long. It's not hard. It's a matter of actually doing it. 
And, you know, some of it we can do pretty lackadaisical. Hey, I only grow one variety of this. I'm not worried about crosses or whatever. I'm just going to save this so you can grow it every year. Great. Great. This one here I want to work with, so that's the one you're going to put effort into. But if we all do a little bit with this, what can be done to restore the self-sufficiency of our food supply in just a generation is enormous. I don't know anything else that has as high a return for as little work and just a little bit of coordination with each other than saving seeds. So hopefully after listening to today's show, you are on board with it and you'll start thinking about, you know, one, expanding your seed stocks going into this year and what are you going to save and how are you going to save it and what are you going to work on? What are you going to develop as your land race? You know, just think, I think like everybody could come up with like one thing that you're going to do some kind of massive broadcast with and look for survivors. A couple things that you're just going to grow every year and just save your seed and not make a big hairy deal out of it. And maybe a couple that we can like start creating our own hybrids and proving out our own varieties. Everybody can do that and not add much work to your annual, you know, gardening. And then if we start sharing those results. Because no one's going to fix this problem for you. Because all of the large corporate interests want to narrow down to less variety and more patentability and trademarkability. Because they don't want self-sufficient customers that only buy from them to get started or to renew stocks or increase diversity. They want captive customers that must come back every year. They don't want the farmer that just simply takes 5% of his wheat harvest. And sets it aside to seed with next year. They don't want that. That's why they create patentable, right, licensable varieties of this stuff to prevent that. It doesn't have to be that way. And this is one of those places where you can say everything you want about the corporate interests and governments controlling things, and you'd be right, and it still doesn't matter. I don't care if the seed's patented. Unless you're, you're farming 80, 800 acres of something, I don't care. If you think it's valuable, start saving it and start working with it, start deriving your... Unless you're going to go out and sell it and, and get tracked down genetically, it doesn't matter. What do you think they're going to do? You think Monsanto has a time to have somebody rope out of a black helicopter into the back of your garden to see if you're actually producing something that might somehow be connected to them? They don't. They do do that shit to farmers. And I don't think most of that stuff we want to do that with anyway. I'm pointing out that since you could even do that, that what you can do outside of that is virtually unlimited. This is the one place where we have equal standing. It's a lot like cryptocurrency, right? It's interesting that cryptocurrencies are protected by a seed phrase. Just going to say that, right? But where we have so much capability and so much diversity and so much opportunity that there's no way that a Monsanto or a Bear or a Conagra can compete with tens of thousands of farmers and tens of millions of gardeners in developing things that will actually make us more self-sustaining. Self so get on board with the seed-saving train, guys. With that, hope you enjoyed today's show. If you did and you want to support our show, remember, you can do that by joining the Member Support Brigade. And if you join the Member Support Brigade, guess what? There's like six companies that do seeds and plants that give you discounts. So if you're going through seed catalogs and stuff right now, thinking about adding variety and how, you're gonna, how the seed-saving all plays into this, hey, become an MSB member, 50 bucks a year. Use the discounts, get your money back, plus make a profit. Why wouldn't you be a member? If you listen to this show and you like it, I'm not asking you to join like PBS does, like support the programming you love and we'll send you a tote bag that's worth five cents. No. I'm just saying that, hey, if you like what we do, you can support us at 18 cents an episode and you can get your money back. Doesn't it just make financial sense to do that? And without you members, guys, I couldn't do this. Members are what makes this show possible. The other way you can support us is do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. You go to tspaz.com, and uh, anything you buy, once you start there, no matter what it is, will help support us. Today's item of the day is a book by Eric Tussenmeyer. Eric is the guy that co-wrote the two huge volume encyclopedic set, Edible Forest Gardens with Dave Jackie. It's an incredible treatise on plant varieties and forest gardening and perennials and all that stuff. This is a far more approachable, less expensive book, by the way, called Perennial Vegetables by Eric Tosenmeyer. 
Um, it goes with over a hundred different vegetables we can grow that are perennial, meaning we don't have to save seed. They can be reproduced through cuttings and division, and they come back on their own year after year after year. And as much as I love a lot of the annuals that we grow, the more perennials that we can grow, the less we have to disturb soil and the more sustainable we become. And a lot of these perennial edibles get to the point where they're almost weed-like. They, they propagate themselves, and then they can be pulled up out of the ground or propagated with cuttings or what have you and sold or given to others. That's true sustainability. And I'll throw out kind of a bonus today. Not only did uh, Eric co-write Edible Forest Gardens, he also wrote another book called Paradise Lot. Eric and his friend Jonathan bought a two like a, a duplex house together. And then the backyard is fenced so that the two sides share a single backyard. And this is not a big property. It's a long, narrow property in Massachusetts. And they have turned it into an amazing permaculture wonderland. And almost everything they grow, plus some, is included in the Perennial Vegetables book. But Paradise Lot details the story behind it. So it's written from a different standpoint. And I'll say, even in that book, even though it's not so encyclopedic, I learned a ton about plant varieties and techniques and things like that as well. Uh, it was also interesting to listen, because Eric is kind of a... Um, very much kind of comes from the left side of politics, and you can tell he believes in government, or at least he did when he wrote the books, to justify the imposition of the state in his life in his backyard, like when he had to get rid of his chickens. It's interesting to listen to somebody kind of intellectually tap dance around that and, 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 and not quite be at the point where they're willing to understand the limitations that the state imposes on people that should not be there. Uh, so I think it's a very enjoyable book as well. So whether you get Perennial Vegetables or Paradise Lot or both of them, if you start at tspaz.com, you support us no matter what you buy, whether it's something that's listed there or not. Always remember that. It's easy, painless way to support the show that you listen to. With that, let's talk about our song of the day today. Um, this song is by Blackberry Smoke, and I really dig Blackberry Smoke. I think they're like a modern Leonard Skinner in some ways. Um, it's country, but it's really more southern rock. And it's, it's just, they have just a great song, a great sound. This song today is called Freedom Song. And it's about really developing your own version of freedom in your own life, in your own way, under your own circumstances, because we all have that right. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. That man in the mirror staring back at me. Ain't the man I used to see I've been walking the line a long time Need a change Breaking my back, working double shifts The weight of the world's getting hard to lift I'm starting to think I need to break a link in this chain Something's got to give This ain't no way to live Long as I'm long gone